Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Mike, how are you, brother? Excellent, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having us and uh, look forward to the chat. Wow. Thank you for joining us. It's, um, I was like a man with a, with a bookcase behind him. Says a lot about you. Yeah, a, lot of, a lot of cookbooks. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like 1984, Brave New World, Wild Swans. Well, no, they're, they're in the other room. Yeah, they're in the other room. Uh, more importantly, did you come tooled up? Oh yep, yeah. I got my. I always have a Nerf gun when you got a when you got a son in the house. You got to be, you got to be prepared. He's often seen leopard crawling around the house, clearing rooms. He interrogates me from time to time. Yes, and more importantly, there's a war out there, but we're we're not going to talk about that now. For for our friends at home, uh, Mike. McCarthy is one of the most fascinating people I know. Um, circumstance, I think you know what the circumstances I'm referring to have brought us together. I'm fascinated to hear your story, Mike, and I'm just off the top of my head, military, Falklands, commercial, um, aeroplane pilot, Base jumper, that's parachuting off 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 uh, structures for people that are that are <laughs> that don't. That, I'm sure everyone knows what what base jumping is these days. But base jumpers jumped off the Eiffel Tower, Empire State Building. I'm not going to go on anymore. But let's start from the beginning, Mike. How did you end up joining the military, and what did you join? Well, I've been raised, uh, you know, in, in a military family. Um, so it was the, the only world I knew. You know, my father was in the military. Um, and, you know, every three years we'd sort of move around the place. He was in the Army Physical Training Corps. Um, but he was with Special Forces, Marines and Airborne Forces. So we were always with some, you know, interesting units. And then I spent six years of my childhood in Germany. So, you know, I really enjoyed that part of my childhood, um, especially. I love Germany. And then I got sent back to boarding school in England and learned quite a, a bit about the world, really, um, from some of my teachers um, to, I guess, not trust government, I guess, was, a, was one of the best things I came out of school with. Um, yeah, I had a great, great two teachers in particular. And, uh, and then so when, when I left school, uh, I, I left early, I, le well, I left at 16 um, and I just wanted to join the parachute regiment, but my father wouldn't let me join junior para because, you know, I was too young to, to join the adults. And so, and then we were up in Herefordshire. Um, by that time, my father had retired from the army and he was running a parachute school in Hereford. Um, and one of the guys from, from the SAS, or lots of them used to jump there, was, you know, a lot of ex-military or serving military people, one of their favorite hobbies is skydiving. 
and so I remember a, 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 a man at the time, a guy called Frank Collins, um, who then became a good friend. Um, he was tapping out Morse code for me and I didn't know what Morse code was. So, and he was in, at the time he was in, um, two, six, four signal squadron, which is, you know, part of the SAS. Um, he went on to be badged, but, um, and so he said, Oh, that's Morse code. It's telecommunications. And he, he, he had, um, got a trade. He went to military college for two years. So I, I said to my father, cause he didn't want me to become, you know, parachute regiment, maybe, maybe a, a wise thing, but, um, but I just wanted to be a para and I knew there were para signals because, um, my friend Frank was in SAS signals. And so, so I, my, my father allowed me to join the military as long as I, you know, got myself a trade. So off I went to, um, you know, to, um, signal school up in Harrogate for two years. And then when I graduated from there, because they knew I wanted to be para signals, they, they sent me off to Watershot and I did P company, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, my pre-para training was with nine squadron, which are um, para engineers. And so when you get onto, uh, if you've done pre, pre-para with nine squadron, by the time you get onto P company, it's, it's a lot easier. So nine squadron are, are, are quite tough. Um, anyway, so, so that was great. So I did three and a half years with airborne forces and I'd actually applied to leak because I, I was really kind of a full-time skydiver in, in the military. Um, kind of part-time soldier and the only time I'd be back in my unit was when we were on exercise um, and we were always we always served with the enroll battalion there was always one battalion in Ireland one battalion in Germany and then the enroll battalion that was on standby to kind of move anywhere in the world was always based in in Aldershot so we you know we served them and, and worked with them um, and so I'd always be off because I was on the, the, I ended up being on the, the army parachute team and then the joint services parachute team, um, which was made up of sort of the best of the Marines, airborne forces, well, just the best skydivers in the army. And, um, and we ended up being the, the British team as well. So I was doing a lot of skydiving and then I'd be back in my unit for an exercise. And then, so after half, you know, three years of that, I just thought I, I was just ready to go do more, more skydiving really. Um, and then, uh, so I'd applied to, to leave because I was meant to be in it for a lot longer because the longer you sign up for, the more money you get. Um, but I was just ready to buy myself out. So, and at the time, um, I was with 565 Rear Link Detachment Paris Signals, which was uh, one of the smallest units in the army at the time as 18 of us. And so, so I'd applied to leave and suddenly the Falklands War came up. And so my leave got cancelled because they needed our skills down there. Um, I mean, they need everybody down there. It doesn't matter if you're special forces or a cook or whatever you do. Everyone in the military is a, it's a symbiotic relationship and everybody needs each other. So, you know, so we were needed to do our bit. And, um, and I thought, ah, oh, it's great. It's like a, it's like a real exercise. It's a war. So why not? Like, you know, and, uh, so although we're sailing down there, we thought, ah, the diplomats will sort this out. I mean, it's 1982, you know, we, we play football with Argentina. There's not going to be a war. And, um, but there was, and so I, I just, you know, did my bit. Um, and that was, that's my war story. Really. I didn't, you know, I didn't kill anyone. I almost got killed myself. My boss got killed. Uh, a few of my friends got killed. Um, and so, you know, that war is very messy business. Um, 
but I, you know, so we all sailed back. And then sailing back, um, we had a choice. Can we, well, we went, can, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Mike, but the, the stuff you're saying, and I think we've had this conversation before, to me and you, it's just our lives. It's pretty normal. You know, you only get one life. You've got to live it. To people listening that haven't maybe been in the military or, or even they've been in the military, but they didn't experience combat, this stuff is just fascinating. I mean, how did you get to the Falklands? Well, we, we were with, with five brigades. So we, the Canberra left first and we went down on the QE2 and we popped into, um, uh, into uh, Freetown, Sierra Leone to refuel. Um, I think that's where the drugs came on board because, um, you know, that's... that's uh, Tell us more. Come on. This is yeah. the stuff we want to hear. I mean, someone should do research on it, really. I mean, if you look at the um, the amount of drug and alcohol abuse in the American military and the British military, it's uh, it's it's massive. Um, and so I think there was definitely um, some of that in the Falklands War. Um, but anyway, so that's what Freetown, West Africa may have been for. But they refueled. They had to refuel there. And um, and then. Um, yeah, I, I, well, and then we transferred to the Canberra, um, and then we transferred to a, a naval ship, and then we went into to San Carlos and, and and went in there. And there was a marine engineers on the beach. And I remember the night before, um, my boss, who was the only guy in my unit that got killed, a guy called Mike Forge, Major Mike Forge, great guy. And I was with him the night he got killed. And um, and luckily, you know, by God's grace, narrowly escaped that. And um, but he, yeah, he said, you know, his biggest responsibility, he felt, he, he got us all together just before we, we got into the landing craft the following day. And he said, you know, my main responsibility, he felt, was to get us all back alive. Um, and him and, and uh, one of our staff sergeants was the, were the only two of our unit that got killed. Um, and, I, and then the next day when we were loading onto the... Um, I went in with the Gurkhas and when we're loading onto the landing craft, which the Marines were running um, and they'd secured the beach by that time. And, um, and I remember um, my Bergen, it was like the heaviest Bergen I'd ever carried. It must, I must've weighed over a hundred pounds. It was so heavy. And, uh, and I was lifting the thing up. It was, you know, just for, I could, as a signal, you, you, you've got to carry radios and batteries as well as ammunition and a whole bunch of other stuff. And um, and I stood there next to this Gurkha, the guy who was shorter than me, and I'm lifting up my Berg, and, and I thought, wow, this is really heavy. This is ridiculous trying to carry this. And uh, and I and I looked at him. I said, oh, it's pretty heavy. How heavy is yours? And uh, he let me lift up his, and his was way heavier than mine. And this little guy, I mean, you know, Gurkhas are great, fit, fit, fit men. And um, so we, you know, loaded into the landing craft with our weapons and Bergens. And uh, it was just a daybreak and, and, you know, and we went and, um, but nobody shot at us. So we had a, a, a pleasant landing really compared to the, the people that had gone ahead of us. And then we had to um, walk to, um, or tab or yomp to, to Goose Green. And, and then along the way, a, a chopper came in and, um, and I ended up gaining on it and got, got a lift to, to Goose Green. Um, and then I was there. Sorry, again, I'm interrupted. For people at home, do you want to explain what, what the difference between tabbing and yomping is? Is tabbing's a lot slower, isn't it? 
yeah, yeah. I think well, well, Paris call it tabbing, and the Marines call it yomping, and um, I think it's the same thing. So I think it's equally demanding, and um, and we, we we know that feeling. And, and uh, tactical advance to battle, or is that just something somebody made up? Yeah, that's what. But I don't know what yomping stands for. Um, you only. You're march. obviously misplaced. <laughs> you only march physically exhausted. They just took the e off it. Okay. Oh, yeah, I like tabbing. Tabbing sounds much nicer. Sorry. And, and, go, and, go on. Go on. You you rocking up at Goose Green? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know what yomp meant actually. But um, so off we did, and uh, off we off we tabbed, um, and so I arrived in Goose Green in in a helicopter um and then and then i was there for a little bit i picked up myself a, a folding stock fn um because there was a big pile of weapons and um yeah sorry my my son's creeping up on me so i've got to right took care of him okay and then um so yeah i picked up myself a folding stock fn because i thought you know because uh, we, we had slrs and um, you couldn't do automatic bursts. And we were told that one of our threats, certainly as signalers, because um, signalers get, you know, radio rebroadcast stations and things like that are, are, are a, a, a prize target for, for, uh, for an enemy. So, um, so I thought oh, it'd be handy to have um, something where I could put on one-on-one -on -one tracer. And the FM, which was, you know, 7.62, same as the SLR, um, but you could do automatic bursts with an FN, and I I like the, the folding stock one because it took up less room. So I I, I picked one of those up. Uh, there was just this massive pile of weapons where all the the, the captured Argentinians had had to throw all their their um, their weapons into. Um, so yeah, it was a it's just great all these free guns. Um, and then there was a sh and I had to get round to Fitzroy, and there was a. Sh uh, a guy called Brian Hanrahan, who was a BBC journalist, um, he was in Fitzroy and he had to get there as well. So him and his two crew, um, they wanted to sail around. There was a boat, there was like a little fishing boat in Fitzroy. I've got what it's called. And then that, um, I got on that, just my, myself, Brian Hanrahan, his two crew. Um, there was a paratrooper up front with a big gun. Um, and then the whole hold was full of Gurkhas. And we just sailed around in the nighttime and arrived in Fitzroy, and then you know got up, got set up in Fitzroy. Um, did you? So I, I guess I didn't do too much tabbing. Did you take part in in the Battle of Goose Green? No, no. We arrived a few days after that, um, so it had already been secured, and you know they buried our brothers, and yeah. So yeah. You know, and Major was... Mike was it? Mike Ford, wasn't it? Well, well, well. The only guy I knew well um, was the adjutant of two power, Dave Woods, and I, I knew him as a skydiver and brilliant, brilliant man, great athlete, uh, Scotsman, excellent guy. And um, and then I, yeah. So that was the only guy I knew personally as a friend, um, and he, he, so he, he got killed in in that battle, um, which is was an, an amazing feat. So I, I, I definitely study that if you're if you're interested and it's only this year that i've discovered there's so many things about the falklands war on youtube and even the uh, the encounter that almost cost me my life is actually recorded there um 
which I don't think I've sent you, but that was that was uh, a few weeks later. Um, so I might, I, I might get into that. So yeah, we arrived in Fitzroy, and we just you know set up our. I'm, I'm sorry to keep interrupting. You're too humble, mate. What? How did you nearly? How did you nearly lose your life? How did uh, Major Mike get killed? Well, with, yeah, Mike Forge. Yeah, there was. Um, I think it was like two o'clock in the morning. One morning, um, I forgot which which mountain they were clearing. Um, you know, there was Mount Harriet and Mount Longdon and Two Sisters and a whole bunch of other stuff going on, all kind of on the same night, really. Um, Marines were doing their bit, Paris were doing their bit. You know, everybody was. It was well, obviously, well coordinated as the British British Army normally is. Um, and so we were we were meant to go forward um, to, up to two Paris lines, myself and Mike Forge, um, and go to a, a, a rebro station as well, um, a radio rebroadcast station, and, and deliver something, you know. Um, code cards, I think I was given them anyway. Um, and so was so this gazelle came in to pick us up in Fitzroy. It was you know two o'clock in the morning. Um, and so myself and Mike, yeah, you know, he was my boss. We we got on the aircraft, and then um, and then this staff sergeant, another brilliant guy, guy called Joe Baker from 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 Paris. He'd served earlier with Mike Forge in 16 Power Brigade um and you know he was older than me i was you know i was 21 at the time and he didn't really pull rank on me but he you know i mean he's a staff sergeant and i'm just a parasignaler and um and he just he had his bergen on and his weapon and you know we were literally about to take off and he just came up to the aircraft and said mac mac let me go with the boss let me go with the boss and you know i wasn't going to get into an argument then and um and i went oh okay no worries. And so I just gave him the wallet that I was supposed to deliver to the signals officer um, and then picked up my weapon, my Bergen, um, got off the aircraft and uh, and off it. It just took off with uh, with you know, two pilots on board, uh, Mike and Joe Baker. Um, and then it just went behind the hill um, and got shot down. And so everybody was killed. We, or a lot of the stuff that I wasn't aware of at the time, but we were just told the aircraft had been hit, that there was an enemy patrol in the area, some so Argentine special forces patrol. And so we took up all these defensive positions around Fitzroy. Um, and yeah, so no, nothing happened to us that night. So that was our, our boss gone and, and um, what, what our staff sergeant. Um, and then I didn't find out the truth of that story until maybe yeah ten years later because I I left I left the military and then um I, you know shortly after we got back from the war um and then I went off doing war photography and a whole bunch of other stuff training foreign militaries and in Southeast Asia and stuff and then I I became and then I I tried to get out of that and I became a commercial pilot so I did all my training and then I came back. Because I, I was a commercial helicopter pilot, I came back to England, and then I tried to. I thought, ah, oh, I need a bit of job security, so I thought I'd try and rejoin the British Army and 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 the Army Air Corps, and so so I got sent off to Netheraven because I was a skydiver and I became like a civilian parachute instructor 
um, um, whilst I was going through the process of rejoining the British Army as a, as a helicopter pilot, I'd have to go through all the uh, Army Air Corps training, even though I was a commercial helicopter pilot. Um, but that kind of helped me get in there. And then and the, the guy who was the head of the Army Air Corps was also the pilot on the weekends for the Army Parachute Center in Netherhaven, where I was working. And he knew that I was trying to rejoin and he liked me. And he said, oh, come on. So on Monday, he, he said, oh, you know, he was just flying Saturdays and Sundays. And um, a great guy, I've forgotten his name. Um, and he, he was a brigadier, I think. And so he um, he invited me down to his office at the lower part of Netherhaven because there was an Army Air Corps squadron um, based in Netherhaven. And so we're just chatting in his office and I'm telling him my war story about the Army Air Corps. And he looks at me. And because uh, don't forget, I'd been away for you know almost 10 years. And he said, oh, you um, I just told him my story. But he said and he's looking at me like he says, oh, you haven't heard then. I said, what? He said about what happened that night. And um, I said, no, you know, I, I left the army uh, in shortly after we got back. Um, and apparently it was the, the the mother of one of the pilots that was really pushing for the investigation she wanted to know what happened to her son that night you know he her son had died so she was really pushing for the truth to come out and eventually it came out that it was the british navy and it's a you know it was a, a, a false fire attack or a, whatever they call it blue on blue right is it blue on blue and um so yeah it was a, a, a british naval officer um made a decision to shoot what he thought was an enemy aircraft down um, with a, I think it was a, a Sea Wolf or a Sea Dart missile, um, and so yeah, it was it was that. So he told me the whole story, and but I because it it had been in the media, but I was I was away all the time, so so I'd missed out on that the truth of that. And then um, and so I kind of committed a, a I was on my way into the Army Air Corps, and then I committed a, a a social faux pas, shall we say, and uh, that sort of that stopped my um my entry into the army air force so. tell us what it was are we allowed to ask Can't yeah, nothing. it was just um just no no i just um i i there were one of these the one of the students on on the course that i was teaching on um up at the joint services parachute center um was a female officer and um yeah, she just happened to be um, the uh, the girlfriend of the of the uh, of the base dentist, the Army Dental Corps, and um, so you know, and he just happened to be good friends with um, with the guy who was processing my um, application to to join the uh, the Army Air Corps, and so I got this letter from this major, and uh, and it was all going very well. And I would have, you know, been accepted in. And uh, I just got this stinking letter. And uh, we will not accept men of your character into the army corps. So, um, so uh, you know, it's uh, it is what it is. And so, yeah. So, so I didn't get to rejoin. And then I just carried on with my my soldiering and my you know my war photography up until. 1998 i guess that's when i got out of that did seven wars in six months in 1998 and, and um right let's take it one one stage at a time as i say you're you're awfully humble um 
let, let, I want to talk about the skydiving, what it's like to become a commercial pilot. Um, have, did you say you've done mercenary work? No, I, uh, the only I've I trained. Um, yeah, I, I trained the, the commandos of Singapore, and then okay. I trained um, in South, various units in the Thai military, Thai special forces, um, Prime Minister's close protection team, and the Royal Guard, um, all in in uh, in in Thailand. So I, I lived in Southeast Asia for about three to four years. Um, but then during that time, I was covering wars for Japanese television, NHK, and did some work for the BBC in uh, wars in Burma and Laos, a few other things. Okay, can we can we go back to the skydiving then, Mike? And and can you tell us about your skydiving journey? Well, I'd just grown up in it. So I did my first jump um, up in Hereford on my 16th birthday. And my sister was two years older than me and she was a skydiver as well. And she, she and my father was flying the airplane, another guy was dispatching me and my sister jumped out after me and, and flew around me and I was you know so happy I did my first parachute jump which was in those days was a static line jump from two and a half thousand feet um, whereas nowadays it would be you know you I think often the first jump is a tandem jump and then you do AFF although you can still do static line jumps as well so so I've done a few thousand jumps which is not a lot these days um, you know I mean, I think my brother's done 18,000 jumps and he's running a school in Thailand, um, a commercial school. And there are guys with way more jumps than him. So. So, yeah. So, but yeah, I've done lots of that. But yeah, were mostly. You, were, you, were you frightened on this first jump? How, how, how did you feel as the plane was going up? It, yeah, I mean, even though I'd been, I'd grown up in it and I'd, I'd seen a lot of it and I'd been in the airplane over the years with skydivers and. And the Red Devils in Germany, they used to come over every year. And so, you know, my father was working at a school, a, an army skydiving school there. Well, but back then it wasn't called skydiving. It was called sport parachuting. Um, but the American influence on, on the sport is, is, is big. And so it became skydiving. And, um, and yeah, but of course, it's, it's uh, everything, you know, your, your brain is telling you, you should not be doing this, but you know, you trust the training and you trust the equipment and it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant experience. And it's for a lot of people, the, the most exciting thing they've ever done. And, um, and the, the standard of training is, is very, very high. Um, certainly within the, the British and, and the American sphere, um, not only for beginners, but for, for, for highly skilled people, it's, it's, it, the training is very good and the equipment is very, very good. People do get killed, but um, it's, it's pretty rare. I think more people are getting killed landing these days because the parachutes are, are so advanced and, and base jumping um, still kills people. But, uh, but it's, it's a relatively safe sport. Um, I'd, I'd say um, cycling is, is more dangerous than, um, than skydiving. So yeah, yeah, when I when I skydived, there was a couple of uh, skydivers at the the base I was jumping from, and I'm not suggesting anybody does this. I'm just telling you what they did. They used to just pack their chutes in any any um, let's just say call it a mess that they could, and shove it into the canister. Right? Obviously, they had the 
the the the little drogue shoot to pull it out was in the right place and and they were just they just wanted to see what you know for people listening when you pack a skydiving shoot or any parachute it's done in a very set procedure it, it's almost well it is it's clinical you have a, a pot of elastic bands that you 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 tie the um the uh what's the word i'm looking for the strings the the lines the lines sorry you know they're tied up in a certain way it comes out in in a in probably like about five different stages well these guys would just no shove it in let's see what happens and and they couldn't they couldn't get this the modern skydiving canopy to malfunction yeah, I, th I think uh, the, the guy called Ian Marshall, when we were at Netheraven, you know, when I was in my, you know, 19, um, I guess, um, a guy called Ian Marshall from the Parachute Regiment, I think he was the guy that um, developed that, that packing method called the Trash Pack. And because I was with the Joint Services Canopy Relative Work Team, which is where you fly parachutes into each other and create these big stacks, and then you do rotations as well. And we were training for the World Championships um, at Netheraven. And he developed this packing method, Ian Marshall, um, which became known as the trash pack. And it was it ensured that we could, as we deployed out of the aircraft, um, it, that the parachute would open on heading, because that was very important with canopy relative work, is that your canopy opens on heading. And then that became very important um, in base jumping as well. So Ian's great contribution to skydiving would be the trash pack method, which is now the standard method. Um, because opening on the heading is very, very important. Um, so you don't fly into other people uh, on deployment and also for base jumping, very, very important. You know, you want to be facing away from the cliff when you, when you, when you jump off it, mm. which doesn't always go well. And um, did you yeah. have any near, near accidents when you were skydiving? Um, yeah, I, I never had any serious injuries. Um, did you ever have to pull your reserve? Yeah, I did. I, um, a few times, you know, in a few thousand jumps. And well, canopy relative work was was because um, we were very much in as we were training for the world championships. We were really pushing the envelope and trying to be as fast as possible. And um, I remember on one of them where um, we were doing rotations, like four man rotation, like four of you get together and um, and then the top person peels off, which was another development of Ian Marshall's actually for rotating because other teams around the world were sort of going off to the side and then coming in at the bottom. Whereas Ian came up with this idea of going over the back and that really gave us the cutting edge. Um, but it was, it was, you know, quite dangerous. And, and if, if the top um, jumper doesn't lift his legs up high enough, he'll catch the, the leading edge of the canopy beneath him and he'll tow that canopy with him. And that happened one time, I think with, with, with us. Um, and so all three of you end up wrapped together. So you have these, and you're, you know, you're falling very, very fast, but you're all, but you, you're all trapped. You, all your parachutes are all tangled up together. And so I was on one of those and, um, and it's an accident, you know, you, you know, it's, it, it, it can happen. Um, and so all three of us were just hurtling towards the earth. Um, and luckily enough, we were high enough and all three of us had to cut away um, 
and when and because you're all spinning around and, and flying into across each other so you have to coordinate it well and you're all kind of screaming who's going to cut away first um and that so you don't you don't want to cut away and then fall on top of someone that means um, you cut your main shoot away doesn't it yeah you have it's a, like a three ring it's called a three ring circus and it's it's what attaches your risers to to the parachute and then you you have a little pad down here on the right um and then you you pull that and then that detaches you from the three you know from from the risers which are attached to the lines and the rest of the canopy and then you go back into free fall but of course you don't want to fall onto someone else when you do that because you could kill them and so it's quite a yeah you've got to be a little bit cool um but you know you know keep low and move fast in moments like that and so i was on one of those and and all three of us survived and um and the person who caused the uh the uh, the accident was very humble and um because you have to be because we all make mistakes when you've cut away mike is there a few kind of heart beating seconds that you just pray that your reserve is going to open okay because obviously if it doesn't it's game over yeah yeah it was um yeah sure i mean you rely on and once with um with, with getting a reserve packed uh, i don't know you always back then you know you you would get a rigger to pack your reserve and then they would sign off. So they were like highly qualified, um, you know, um, you know, parachute maintenance experts. And so they would, they would pack your reserve for you and then they would put a, a lead seal on it. Um, and, and you would have to have that lead seal on, uh, you know, you couldn't get on an aircraft without your um, reserve parachute having been packed by a, a, a licensed um, rigger. So you know the the the, the testing and, and the, the safety checks in skydiving as in aviation are, are taken very very serious. Um, you know, as a mechanic, you know you you don't get to just fix an airplane and then let it go off and fly. You know, every everything that you've done have done needs to be signed off by the the the, the senior engineer, aircraft engineer. You know, within the the maintenance facility. So. There's so many checks, safety checks in in um, military and civil aviation and and in skydiving. So, but accidents still happen, and it's normally human error that causes these things. But the the safety checks are, are, are really there in place and and are very well respected. And were um, these were these the days before? Is it called Cyrus, which is the automatic scissors? There's the AODs or automatic opening devices, um, and yeah, the Cyrus. There's, there's different ones of them. Yeah, they were just kind of coming in then, and and I never had one. I mean, some people would have them, but they were very expensive. Um, now it's very common, um, so that when if you do get knocked out or you know for whatever reason don't open your parachute, often you know you might be so engrossed and with with, with what you're doing skydiving, you kind of forget that the Earth is rapidly approaching and um and so the aad will fire off once you get i think it's below 1500 feet or something um and, and you can set it and it's um and so that's what all all people would have now most people would, would, would have those um that they're not as expensive as they used to be and i've been out of the, the skydiving game um since 1998 we, we did a big thing in russia um building a big 300 way in in russia jumping out of russian helicopters and it was after that 
um i for all sorts of reasons um i just decided to get out of skydiving after building that big thing in russia um thanks to the everybody else on it and also the russian air force but um with the mi-26 helicopters but then i i continued with skydiving as but as a skydiving pilot a skydiver driver so i, I was working in america just dropping skydivers out of bigger airplanes so let's let's stick, let's stick with the skydiving and then we'll talk about the the, the flying because i just find this stuff fascinating mate so how do you put well when was your first base jump? Do you, do you just go straight and do one, or do you have to do a load of training? Well, we it was it was base jumping hadn't happened in England, and a a friend of mine came back from California, and he had jumped off Yosemite, um, a, a beautiful big wall in um, well El Capitan. It's a, a big wall in Yosemite National Park, and um, a guy called Frank Donellan who was a civilian and was a, a, a dear friend of mine. Um, and he died base jumping so, some years later. But, um, and so we all, yeah, and I was in the army at the time. So my, my first base jump was when, in fact, I think all my early base jumps were as a soldier. Um, and uh, I think I did my, my first base jump in uniform. Um, off a big mast somewhere near Ipswich. And so, yeah, we'd base its buildings, antennas, spans, which means bridges and earth, B-A-S-E. So that's what base jumping is. And in order to get your base number, you have to do all four. Can I just ask you a question? So those of us that have done the balloon jump, would that count as a base jump, even though you're, you're, hook, you're hooked up to the balloon? Well, I mean, maybe, um, what well, you it could instead of building you could just say balloon i suppose um because it is i guess it is a it's fixed object jump jumping that's what base jumping is it's fixed objects like a building an antenna a span a bridge or an earth and um the i don't know why I... they, don't, they should just call it babe really um b-a-b-e but they call it which would be nicer you know babe jump well maybe you shouldn't do that but um yeah that would get confusing. So you can't call it babe jumping. But anyway, so instead of bridge, they just say span. So it's um, B-A-S-E. But, but a balloon is tethered as well. And so in a way, it is a fixed, you know, it, it is a fixed object. So I guess you could call balloon jumping, which I love. When I, you know, when I was with, with the paras, we used to have the, every summer, they'd be down on um, Queens Avenue, the, the, uh, the um, what they called, Anyway, the the Air Force would turn up with um with their instructors, and the the balloon would go up every day. It was brilliant, and you could turn up if if you're an airborne soldier, you could just turn up and show your ID, and they would just give you a rig, and it was great because you didn't have to pack them. So they would just give you a rig, and four of you would go up with a PJI. That's what I was trying to remember: a, a parachute jump instructor, an RAF PJI, and often a lot of them were the PJIs were skydivers, and because they used to teach um on the weekends at the um the raf sport parachute center in um gosh what was it called uh, western on the green and so you know some of them knew me so they would let you sort of do a backflip out the uh out the um out of the balloon but the balloon jumping uh we used to love it, it was so quiet and scary so that was very much like a base jump it's and it's it's more it's more uh, nerve-wracking than um jumping out of a c-130 because in the c-130 you know the, the whole thing is you, you, you're low level, you know, the place stinks of vomit and uh, it's noisy. And uh, it's, 
and it's it's fast and you're just being thrown out you know go 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 and uh so it's it, you don't have time to um be overly nervous but on a, a balloon jump it's it's wonderful i'm i'm i'd love some you know civilian commercial operation to be set up um just jumping out from from a balloon i mean it is such a beautiful experience no they've got rid of it I, now mate they got rid of it i think they thought it was too expensive they now have like a little caravan you know right. a little cessna caravan or whatever um they call it the yeah. scott the sky van sky van no no it's um a Cessna caravan. Um, oh no, well, a sky van. Cessna caravan is something else. But um, yeah. sky. Oh, they use, they, use, they use a sky van. I would have thought they. I used to fly a thing called a Casa Two Twelve, which is a, a beautiful airplane. Um, it's kind of like a, a mini Herc. It's got a tailgate. It's a bit bigger than a sky van, but sky van's a lovely aircraft. Well, um, I feel I've had you know I've had the pleasure of talking to a few of my para brothers on the show, uh, and when they say that they haven't done a balloon jump because it's now it's this sky van, right. it makes me to feel two things. My, it makes me feel old, <laughs> but, but it also makes me feel incredibly privileged to have done two balloon jumps because that that's gone now that that it won't be coming back. It makes you feel more of a man. It there just is. makes me feel a unique part of parachute, you know, military parachuting history. I, I wish they had, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, it's not about expense. I don't know what it is about. Uh, maybe it's just, um, maybe it's just a part of the liberal agenda to, 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 to well, feminize, feminize the men. Don't let uh, them jump over the balloon. We're going to talk more about that in the, in the second part of our uh, production here, but there was the, the program, I'm sure you watched it called the Paras back in the seventies, might've been you? early eighties. No. Um, and my cousin and I used to go up to Lincolnshire and visit my cousins up there. And we would sit and there was, there was one part of the Paras, which was, a, I don't know, let's say an eight part series where they had their balloon jump and there was a black lad in it. I think this is, I think you can find this on YouTube. And the interviewer says, says to this chap, as he's going up in the balloon, he says, how are you feeling? And he goes, I'm absolutely crapping myself. <laughs> like it was like a brummy, a brummy accent or something. Yeah, Me and my cousin just on the old VHS video, we just rewound that bit and we played it about 50 times over. And laugh and laughed every time, laughed every time we did. Um, base jumping then. My gosh, the first time you did it, had you? Because now it's all done. You get specialist parachutes. They're designed to open very quickly to keep you facing the direction you jump. So if there's a gust of wind, it doesn't spin you around and you hit, say, a rock face, because then that's pretty much unless you're lucky to bounce off it and, and catch air that's pretty much game over but back in the early days it was your traditional parachute wasn't it or your traditional skydiving shoot um that was another another thing again hey yeah i mean it's um once again the whole packing method was really important when, when we started base jumping in um 
and I was the first one to do all four, you know, the building, the antenna, the span, and the earth. So I got my, my base number. The Americans were organizing it. So now you can still, you have to do all four to get your, your base number. So my base number is base 24. Um, and so there was a bit of a race on to get the first four in England. And so, and I, I was in the army as well. So we were sneaking off. I, we, did, we did the antenna up and we had to climb this thousand foot antenna in, um, in, uh, in fact, there was a, there was a, um, a Marine. It was actually a great story. Um, it was myself, two civilians, and we were supposed to meet this Marine. Um, great guy. Um, very, very experienced skydiver and soldier. Um, um, Andy Guest, great guy. And so he met up with us um, when he was supposed to meet us there, but he didn't turn up. So we climbed up this antenna and... Um, all three of us jumped off. We did the first base jump and then we got down and then we see another guy. We see this person and it was Andy. So Andy's climbing up. And um, so he eventually jumped off as well. So all four of us did the, uh, the first base jump that, that day. Um, and hopefully Andy's still alive. A really, really fine person. Um, and then you had, then we, there was the building. So we jumped off a, a, a building in London um, and then there was the, the bridge was the, um, was the Clifton suspension bridge in Bristol. That was uh, 168 feet. Well, no, I've forgotten how high that is. Maybe it's a bit higher than that. Um, oh no, that's the, um, the leaning tower of Pisa is 168. I think, I think it's, it's 240 feet. I think, um, Clifton suspension bridge. So we did that. And then the earth was, um, um, with Ian Marshall once again, he he was on the the job with me. He didn't jump it, but he was with me, and um, and that was um, Beachy Head in in southern England. So I jumped off that, um, and I think that was the, that was the first four. Um, and I got banned from the British Parachute Association. It, it came out that I was base jumping and and a whole bunch of stuff kind of hit the fan. Um, yeah. So so you're. Yeah. Your shoot then, were you just using a regular skydiving shoot? And, and did you make any alterations to the way you packed it? Yeah, we, um, I think we used to pack slider down because we wanted it to open really quickly because the slider is used to kind of slow. I mean, parachutes open quickly, but you don't want them to open too quickly because, you know, you're going from 120 miles an hour to next to nothing um very quickly and you know split seconds so you can really damage your back as sometimes we we have done you know if you have a real fast opening it can be quite painful um so the slide is there to kind of give you a, a kind of a staged um opening um but when you're base jumping you know you don't want to you want it to open as quickly as possible especially when you're jumping off really low things i, I think i did the lowest parachute jump at the time which was off the leaning tower of pisa that's 168 feet and it just opened. It just opened as I did a nice flare and hit the ground. But but I'd, I'd worked it. I'd worked it out because I'd I'd found a bridge that was a similar height in England, a, a road bridge that was I think it was about 172 feet. And I, I I didn't jump off it myself, but I threw my parachute off it with with a weight that was the same weight as me, and it just opened as as it hit the ground. So I, so I knew it was possible. Um, that was about as scientific as I got. But um, yeah, so we use the same pattern. We just use regular skydiving parachutes. Now there are parachutes that are made specially for base jumping that you wouldn't use for skydiving. Um, but back then we were just, that's all we had. 
um, but the packing method was 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 the key thing. Um, and the 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 first fatality in base jumping was that USA or, or or UK or somewhere else. I yeah I don't know I I should imagine it was in um, it would have been in uh, in America. Um, yeah, my friend Frank Collins, sorry, not Frank, that's another dear friend. Um, uh, yeah, Frank Donellan, another Frank, let's be frank. Um, I think he was the first fatality in in England. Yeah, it was kind of a sad, ridiculous, sad, very sad story. But he, um, um, I was actually, I was, it was in the middle of the Falklands War. Um, yeah, we got newspapers so, somehow in, in Fitzroy. There was a mail delivery, and these newspapers arrived. And um, and you know, I wasn't reading them, but someone said to me, "Mac, Mac, you know, someone just died base jumping in England." And I thought, well, it's more than it'd be someone I knew. And it was um, and they showed me it was a Sun newspaper, I think. And there we are, you know, in the middle of this war and reading this newspaper. Um, and yeah, it was my friend Frank Collins. And he had died jumping off this bridge, oh, sorry, this building, the same building that I had jumped off, um, you know, a year earlier, maybe, um, called Trellick Towers um, in, in London, I think. I'm not sure where it is. It's in North London somewhere um, near Maida Vale, maybe. Um, but anyway, Trellick Towers. At the time, I think it was the tallest apartment building in um, in Europe, which is why we jumped off it. And so I jumped off that and uh, did a uh, you know a very successful jump. And and so Frank jumped off it um, again later, um, which cost him his life. And he, what had happened is he had um, it was you know static line again. And he had, um, like, you, when, when you pack your rig for base jumping, you would um, you, you put your, the static line through the loop, which kind of closes the four flaps and keeps everything together. Um, and then you put a, 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 you would put, especially if you're transporting it around, you know, in your car or in your power bag, you would tie a little piece of string on it, a little brake tie um, to secure it so it, didn't, it wouldn't pull out accidentally. And um, and uh, anyway, so he was doing this this jump, and a, a friend of ours was with him. And what that friend should have done was look in his just before he was about to climb up and jump off the wall. He, he attached his static line to a strong point, um, and then he would jump, and then it would snap the the static line would just snap the the um, the uh, the brake tie. In, but what what he he let his pull up cord in there, and so the pull up cord, even though the brake tie would break, the pull up cord would um, would st still hold the flaps together so that the parachute wouldn't deploy, um, and so so Frank and it wasn't Frank's fault. Frank was an experienced skydiver and had done a few base jumps, and he was the guy that jumped that brought base jumping to England really because of his jump off um, El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. So in many ways you could say that he was the, the, the godfather or the grandfather of um, base jumping in England. Um, and so he fell away from the building and the brake tie broke, the, the static line came away, but the parachute didn't deploy. 
because what was holding everything together was the pull-up cord. So if he'd had a good pre-jump check, which he didn't, that, that mistake would have been seen. And so he whistled in, uh, you know, hit the ground and, and died, instant death. Um, and the tragedy was he'd actually got married the day before and his pregnant wife witnessed the whole thing. So she was carrying a child at the time, um, who's now my godson. Um, but I learned about all of this um, in, in the middle of a war um, in the South Atlantic. Mm. So that was, that was the first fatality I became intimately aware of. Yeah, bad news. Can you tell us about the Empire State? First, but all these things, it's always safety first. You know, if you're going to do something dangerous, you want to be surrounded by people who are always thinking about safety first. You, you know, whatever you're doing, you know. Yeah, when I when I skydived in America, uh, there was um, one of the one of the guys I was jumping with. They they were in an airplane, and the camera camera person, so someone that was really into filming skydiving, which is a whole nother kind of um, discipline again. You know, people take it really serious the filming. And this jumper had taken it so seriously that they got into the plane and nobody had noticed they forgot to put their parachute on, right? I know that sounds crazy, but they're so like fiddling with the camera. Is it set up right? You know, I'm not, I think this was the days before memory sticks and memory cards. It was, um, or they, they were just, just coming in, but you know, so, they have the they have a the shutter um, button. You hold it in your mouth, and you just bite it to click the camera, right? So you can keep keep your hands out. All, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, they were so intent on checking their equipment that they jumped out of the plane, not really realizing they didn't have a shoot on. Just beyond belief, really. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the the Empire Maybe State. Um, yeah, that was a, that was a good gateway into, um, you know, finding out what's really going on. But yeah, I, I was, um, I mean, was as a civilian, so I, I, I was teaching, you know, I was an AFF, you know, skydiving instructor in, um, in Florida, um, in the wintertime in, um, uh, you know, 1986. Um, and then after that, uh, I, you know, wanted to. Well, a few things I wanted to, I was, I was studying Senator Joseph McCarthy, but anyway, so I wanted to, um, you know, go and jump off something in, uh, in New York. And I, I set my, my heart on, um, jumping off the empire state building. So after a season of, of, um, you know, skydiving and, you know, teaching skydiving and, and doing it for fun as well as teaching is also, but, um, I decided to go up to New York um, in April 1986 um, with a friend of mine who was a former um, officer with the South African military, a guy called Alistair Boyd, great guy. And, uh, and he'd never, he was a skydiver. He wasn't ex that experienced as a skydiver and certainly no base jumping. And so his first base jump, I took him up an antenna in, in Florida and threw him off the top of that. And uh, he did, as he jumped off, 
counting a thousand and one thousand and two you know i said just fall for you know fall for three seconds and then deploy your parachute and uh, it was a big 1500 foot antenna and um and as he jumped off he did this perfect spread eagle um forward he did a complete 360 forward loop because he's a big guy and uh did a and, came, and i thought oh no you know it's going to be horrible i'm watching him. he went off first because i was i was his instructor so i wanted to coach him well you know make sure he's pushing off at the in the right way and we did a, a bunch of training on on, on the ground so he pushed Sorry for friends at home. We, we we've got an audio issue, and I, I'm sorry to keep going on about it. But podcast is is all audio. It's what people listen to. So we've got to keep stopping and trying to work out what our technology problem is. Mike, sorry, back to you, mate. Yeah. So we t I took Alastair up the um, up this antenna, fifteen hundred foot antenna in in Florida, um, and he launched himself off. Um, he went off first because you know, I was his coach. And um, and he was did this perfect spread eagle, but he's a big, big lad, and he went into this forward roll and did a complete 360, you know, a complete front loop. Um, and I thought, no, you know, he's going to die. <laughs> and um, but he came back out face to earth and deployed his parachute, and it opened perfectly, and off he went. And um, so that was his first base jump. And, um, you know, he wasn't that an experienced skydiver and no base jumping experience. So then we went off to New York and um, he was up for the adventure. Um, and and I, you know, I picked the Empire State Building. It was the it was the most iconic building uh, in, in, in New York. Um, the, you know, this was the Twin Towers was still alive and well at the time. Um, but nothing is but not as beautiful and as iconic as, as the. Empire State Building. So I figured out a way how to do it. Um, and and you couldn't get parachutes into the elevator. So we just wore our parachutes, you know, we, and then pulled, you know, pulled, put, put our rigs on, pulled our trousers over the harness. So you couldn't see the harness. Um, and put put um, you know, we had just normal shirts and stuff, put the so the rig could could be seen but we wore coats we wore these big trench coats and um and there were a couple of women waiting to go up the the eiffel uh, up the empire state building as well and so i just said look we you know we're, we're going to do this thing um for a film but we need you to sort of help us um not be not get caught and so they we, so we shuffled into the elevator but they um because apparently we looked like you know um quasimodo or the, the hunchback of notre dame and um because we had these big trench coats on but you could see that we had you know we had a hunchback because of our rigs and so we got these girls to young women to put um put their arms or under the coats and kind of round our back so we it was that was what was distorting our our, our body shape and so they we shuffled into the um into the elevator and then um and off, off we went up to the 86th floor, which is the public viewing platform. It's, it's um, if you see the King Kong film, it's the it's the bit just below. It's the it's the, the topmost. It's not the highest floor, but it's the 86th floor. There's other floors you can access, but not as a civilian, not as a member of the public. Um, and it's got um, it's got a big big fences and and they're with spikes kind of pointing in 
to stop people because people have tried to climb. I think there have been a few suicides off it um, over the years. So they, that was a security to prevent people from climbing, you know, from throwing themselves off and you know, committing suicide. So that was what that was there for. Um, and so, but I knew we could climb that. And so at the right moment, and there was a little bit of a wind uh, on, on that day, just a little bit of a headwind. Um, and I wanted to go off facing um, the, um, the the World Trade Center, you know, facing lower Manhattan. And uh, and so I, you know, and uh, Alistair was just, you know, going on my command. So, so we just stood by the fence and I said, I'll let you know when is the time to, 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 to start climbing the fence. And so I just gave the signal. We threw, threw off our coats and these, you know, these young women were with us, but I, we just threw off our coats and then I, we started climbing. And as soon as we started climbing the tannoy, you know, the, the, uh, the, the public address system started blaring, get off the fence, get off the fence, you know, cause they're monitoring it all the time in the security room. And, um, and everyone's panicking, everyone's screaming, you know, there's these couple of suicide maniacs about to kill themselves. And, um, and so they're all, everyone's shouting, get off the fence. And, um, and so we just climbed down the other side and there's these kind of parapets along the, the, the front. I think it's four or five of them, I think. So I stood on one and, and, um, and Alistair stood on the other a couple away from me. And, and I, you know, I, he just knew he had to follow me. And so we, we put on our static lines because we needed as much altitude canopy time as possible because there's, there's nowhere to land. It's just all streets and other buildings. So there's no green fields or, you know, parks or anything. So I knew we had to land in the streets and it was, you know, sort of rush hour. So the streets were very, very busy. Uh, it was the first thing in the morning in, in Manhattan. And so, um, so I just jumped off and the, you know, the canopy opened pretty quickly because it was static line. Um, and then I cleared from in, in front of um, Alistair. So I, I went off and then I started turning left and heading towards Fifth Avenue. Um, I think the Empire State Building is on 34th Street, 34th and 5th. And, um, and then and then Alistair jumped off and he opened. This is a guy who'd only done one base jump before and not a lot of skydiving, but such a, you know, had complete faith in me, which is not always the most, um, the best thing. But in, in this instance, I, I, I knew what I was doing, but, but uh, you always, always uh, check, check your instructor. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm quite reliable in, 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 you know, challenging moments. But um, anyway, so he, he jumped off after me. And then, um, and then, so I'm coming into land on Fifth Avenue, and in in Manhattan, how the avenues go with all the traffic, and then they stop, and then all the streets go, and and just by God's grace, it was so beautiful. As I came in, as I, I thought, well, because there's all these cars going, there's nowhere to land. I was going to have to land in between two roads, but the red lights went on, and all the cars stopped, and suddenly there's this clear, beautiful area, like much bigger than a boxing ring. You know, it's a it's the cross streets, and uh, and I just flared, came in, did a lovely landing, but I knew that um, Alistair was right behind me, so I knew I had to kind of clear out the way, you know, really quickly because I knew he was just following me. He's very very obedient, and certainly was able to to land correctly, and and my mistake was I d I should have collapsed my parachute, 
but in a way it was kind of maybe it was all part of the 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 the, the big plan but um but instead i just moved forward and because i was moving forward my parachute stayed inflated and it and it hooked on a traffic signal Ugh. and uh, and just you know collapsed and i couldn't put I, I couldn't pull it down it was it was hooked onto this traffic signal alistair came in and did a beautiful landing um picked up his canopy and disappeared just ran off because that was the briefing i said right you land and you just get out of there you know we just we we just get a cab back to you know, where we were staying and um <laughs> that's a whole another story where we were staying but um oh he's disappeared sorry the wind blew my office door open that's, that's right the first it's a sign it's a sign it's here for us, folks and so and so i so i thought i don't i'm i'm not going to give run away from my parachute i mean it's my it's my rig you know it's my my best friend so i i kind of stayed with it um and i'm trying to pull the thing off and then the police came you know the the nypd turned up um and you know i'm still in touch with the nypd and so they you know detained me and um and then loads of people came up and they, everyone was very friendly and they everyone thought it was very cool and the, but everyone was very frustrated because now all the traffic was blocked and there was lots of honking of horns um and then alistair very coolly they backed up a truck and because they wanted to know who the other guy was the police i said i don't know just some guy i met you know i know some some skydiver you know i don't know who he is and um and uh but alistair they backed up a truck and so whilst i'm being you know, interrogated by these these uh, these two police officers, um, the truck comes up and um, backs up, and then Alistair climbs on top of the truck, unhooks the parachute. Obviously, he'd stashed his rig away by this time. Unhooks my canopy, that drops down to the road. I pick it all up, and Alistair then disappears again. So, um, so good soldier, you know, uh, South African Defence Force. Don't don't let you down when um, when things kick off. But so he came back. He could have easily just run off, but he took the, the risk. Came back into the into the picture and still, you know, helped me. And then went carried on with his mission, which was to get away from the area and back to where we were staying. And so I then I got detained and I I got you know handcuffed. Well, no, I didn't get handcuffed. They put me in a police car and I got taken to the local precinct. And the the the, the sergeant of the precinct as we walked in is screaming at me you know get cuffs on that man get cuffs on that man and the two guys that you know arrested me were very very apologetic that they had to put handcuffs on me and then they stuck me in a cell with this with this african-american who was a little bit out of it and so we're stuck in this cell together and um and he said um oh, what are you here for and i just i just jumped off the empire state building with a parachute and yeah he couldn't believe it he he thought it was great so that really made his day and then i was eventually you know i was in there for a few hours and then i was eventually um released and and i and w when i got out of the 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 the, uh, the police um the police station there was a, a podium had been set up and there was all this media there to to talk to me and um which you know i wasn't expecting but they they wanted me to say something and it, it became a catalyst for many, many other adventures. And then they they said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, you know, I've got nowhere to live, but, you know, I'm trying to kind of get back to Europe and um, I'm kind of got run out of money. So hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll find a way. And, um, 
and then so that went out over the over the networks and this lovely jewish woman um heard it and she rang up the uh, the television station and said you know if he if he needs somewhere to stay i can give him, him a, an apartment and so this lovely lady janet wolf who was a big shareholder of philip morris tobacco i think she'd been a minor um film star in in hollywood in the 30s or 40s and um and so she became a dear friend um and she, so she gave me my own apartment overlooking central park for the next six months but i learned a lot from her um just through you know as a, as a friend and um you know she i i learned a lot about um edward bernays and 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 how you know he uh, a nephew of sigmund freud got got america through the film industry you know drinking tobacco and and uh, drinking tobacco smoking tobacco and and so that's you know there was always tobacco and alcohol in all these these films and there are still to this day um and then my lawyer was another good jewish guy a guy called stanley futterman and he represented me for free because i then had to wait until the, the court case um and so so i learned through his circle of friends i learned a lot about the corruption of um of the american legal system who, who captured that iconic photograph of you jumping yeah that i've forgotten who took that photograph of the um of of the empire state building jump but it was the same company sigma which is a french news agency and they um and they they covered the eiffel tower jump that i'd done a couple of years earlier about 18 months after the falklands war and and the guy that took the photograph of me um jumping off the eiffel tower um jacques longevin took that photograph and he was the uh, photographer who was first on the scene when um princess diana um died or didn't die in the tunnel but um died sooner late late later in in when she crashed in in the tunnel in paris and and it was um jacques longevin um lots of other cameramen turned up and but jacques because he was an experienced um war photographer as well he put down his cameras everybody else was taking photographs they were called the paris six and jacques was the one they let go because he put down his cameras and, and got in and tried to stop the bleeding and just you know try to do first aid and it's a a horrible scene but um so that was jacques and um so sigma covered so i i, I sigma covered the 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 jump in in paris and then so a couple of years later I recruited them to to cover the the jump in um in New York. And your flying career, Mike, how, what when did you have your first flying lesson? Um Well, I I guess you, you might maybe my first lesson was when I was at boarding school and our boarding school had um the Army Air Corps. We had our own squadron, I think it was 2330 squadron of of the of the um of the army air corps which was like the scouts like the sea scouts and so i the, my first lesson maybe was in was in a chipmunk um uh, and uh, you know it was a it was an raf trainer or it was at the time it's a beautiful little two-seater low-wing single-engine aircraft so that was but my first lesson as an adult was in um i guess i started my my training in in um in texas in fort worth texas sometime in, in the 80s um and then i kind of stopped it all and went back into soldiering and, and war photography um and then in the 90 um 
early 90s, I think. I forgot where you have to look at my logbook, but uh, I, I then you know, got out of um, what I was doing, filming and, and, and training soldiers and skydivers. But so I, I, I tried to get a career change. And I, so I went on a, I did a six month course in Florida and I, I did my commercial, um, my commercial helicopter license first, which is unusual. Normally you, you start with fixed wing, but I did my commercial helicopter training in Florida um and then i transferred to fixed wing so i did my helicopter stuff then i went to single engine um fixed wing aircraft then multi-engine fixed wing aircraft and my instrument rating and so i did all of that in six months so Where, whereabouts in florida mate uh the helicopter stuff was um and single engine um fixed wing aircraft was all in in deland which uh, deland florida which is also a brilliant skydiving so i was skydiving and flying um but mostly that six months i was mostly flying all the time um i'd be doing helicopters and fixed wing jumping in and out of and then i did all my fixed wing training oh sorry my multi-engine training i did in um my my instructor's name for multi-engine was a guy called trip whacker the third and uh it was an unusual name but and there's there'd been three of them and um so he was trip whacker the third giant man and uh, I, so i did um i did um my multi-engine training with him in daytona in okay. uh, just have you heard day. of i learned to fly in fort pierce okay yeah in florida yeah and i learned to skydive in sebastian yep brilliant yeah i've flown there and, and skydived there as well it's a great part of the world it really is. Sebastian was such a, I, I'm not sure what it is to this day, but Sebastian was very, I mean, Deland and Zephyr Hills were the big commercial operations in, in Florida. And then, um, and then uh, Sebastian um, opened up and has done brilliant work. I mean, uh, Andy Grimwade was the guy that owned um, Sebastian and he was a, a, a great character and, and still is alive and well. Oh, hang on. He's English, right? Yep kind of a fairly shortish stocky guy with dark hair yeah um yeah stocky he was quite the rogue and um but a big big guy i think as i remember him i haven't seen him for years would he, but, have, um, would he have owned sebastian in 2005 i mm, i don't know i i i i think maybe not i, I think maybe not um i mean i last time i was flying in sebastian would have been um, was on a Casa 212. I flew down there. I was working for a company in North Carolina, and and we operated um, Casa 212s and Twin Otters and King Airs all, all around America, and um, and so I was down there. I think in maybe 1999, 2000. Um, I don't think Handy was running it then. I I'm not sure. I I can't remember. Yeah, I, but he's still alive and well. Yeah. yeah, I've got a photo of the the chap who ran it when I was there. He was an English guy. They used to get they used to get Marines there. Funny enough, on R and R, they just go yeah. and they go and do their AFF. And yes, yeah. To our great public, there you have no idea what a recipe for shenanigans <laughs> that is. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you can guarantee they all would have jumped naked. <laughs> no, yeah. So when, when the Marines turn up at these civilian skydiving operations, they're always very popular. They're always a lot of fun, 
Um, and they're obviously the, the fittest people on, on the drop zone that day. And uh, no, the, the Marines, uh, you know, British forces generally make a, a, a very welcome in, in the skydiving scene in, in America. And, um, and, and I, I think certainly bring a lot of fun to it and, um, and a, a little bit of uh, maybe lots of social faux pas as well. Mm -hmm. so. But that's why they're loved. Did you have any um, near misses when you were flying? Yeah, oh, well, yes, <clears throat> a few. Yeah, I've, I've been in a few plane crashes. Um, and this is where peer pressure is a dangerous thing. And it, it's, it's caught me out a couple of times in my life where you know you shouldn't be doing something, um, but your friends around you are saying, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. But everything inside of you, and this has happened twice in my life, I'm thinking, no, no way. We should not be doing this. But I ignore that little voice inside of me, that, that, that voice that is there to protect us. And, um, and the one time I was training um, the, the close protection team of the prime minister's bodyguard in, um, and, and, the, and the, the, the guard of the, uh, the royal family in, um, in Thailand as one of the units I was training. And I was teaching them skydiving and microlight flying. And so one of the students had, had um, there'd been a, 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 a bad landing in the microlight and it damaged it. And we tried to repair it. Um, and, and I'd done the test flights, but it, it just wasn't well. You know, it, it wasn't really ready to go back into training, um, you know, flight training. So we went back to the skydiving program. But in Thailand, they have this Memorial Day parade every year for all the soldiers that have died in, in in you know wars that the, the the Thai army have fought, and so they had this big parade at this at the uh, the place where I was training these guys, and they had a massive runway for for C one thirties, and and my my friend who was at the time he, he was like the the personal bodyguard for the prime minister, and wherever the prime minister of Thailand went, my friend Yod, who's since been killed, um, would kind of travel with him and. Um, and so, and he was running the, the, the team that I was training. And so he wanted to impress the, the senior commander of, of the Thai military who was coming to the parade. They were gonna have this massive parade on the, on, the, on the base. And he wanted to show off all the microlight training. And he wanted me to fly the microlight and for him to jump out of it. And, uh, and I said, no, 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 we, there's no way we should be flying this aircraft. Just forget about it. Let's just focus. We'll do it. We'll jump out of a Huey helicopter. We'll do the, we'll do the parachute display for the boss, for the big general. And, but we're not going to do the microlight flying. He said, no, no, no. Oh, Monkate, because that was my, my nickname, Monkate, which means dead on the spot in Thai. Um, oh, no, we must, we must do it. And please, please do one more flight. So I thought, oh, okay. So I took the aircraft out the hangar. It was a two-seater microlight, um, a Pegasus, uh, made by a British company. Really, really good aircraft. And um, uh, well, I, uh, maybe maybe it's not made, but anyway, it might be made Americans. But anyway, it's a really really nice aircraft. Um, and so I took it for a flight around the. Um, well, that was the plan. I I I, I would take this thing off. So I, it's this big long runway. So I you know launched the microlight, took off. And um, and I could I knew the center of gravity and I knew it, it, the whole thing had shifted and when you when you um, when your stall speed um, kind of increases when when you're in a, in a turn in, in, in an aircraft um, 
So, and I knew if I, if I um, made a turn, I was right on the edge of the stall flying sort of, even though I was, I was climbing um, and I, I got it into straight and level, but it was so close to the stall. I thought, I don't want to go into a turn because I'm going to stall the aircraft. And, and so I thought I've got to, I'll just land because it was a long, long runway. So I thought I'll just land the aircraft. No way am I going to go flying with this thing. It's ridiculous. I knew it was wrong anyway. And, um, and um, oh no, sorry. I, I actually did. I did a turn, but I, so I did the turn. I, I did the loop around the, the uh, and, but it was very close to the store. I did the loop around the camp, came into land, and I, I made the decision. I thought, no way should I be flying this. So then I'm taxing back to the hangar, and there's my friend Yod, and he's got his helmet on, he's got his rig on, and, and all, all these senior officers around him. And he comes up to me and I switched the engine off. He goes, Makati, we must go. It, might, it looked good. It looked good. Everything was fine. I said, no way, Yod. We are so, this thing is not, it's bad enough with me in it. If I put another, another bit of weight in it with you on board, it's definitely not going to be safe to fly. And I knew I'd made the right decision. But peer pressure kicked in and my brain left the room. And, um, and I, I said, okay get in the back so with the micro light you know the pilots in the front and the, the the student or the passengers in the back and it's got a rear it's got an engine the propellers at the back you know it's big heavy engine behind you and so i got in i went back to the taxi off and i'm like oh, i shouldn't be doing this but in the noise i'll do it I'll, I'll, I'll be very sensible and and uh, so so we took off and i noticed straight away that things had changed you know all that extra weight I thought, no, there's no way. I'm, I'm not going to go into a turn. I'm not going to go around the camp. Well, well, he wanted me to fly up to a, a few thousand feet. Oh, no, first thing, well, no, what I didn't realize, he wanted me to fly low level over the crowd, drop off what he, I didn't realize this, but he put all these flowers um, in these big bags and he was going to throw them out. And it was kind of a Buddhist thing to throw all these flowers out all over the crowd. And then we were going to fly around and go up to the, he was about to tell me all this over the we had a, a, a we were able to communicate through the helmet you know we, we were wired up together and um anyway so and then we we're going to fly up to a few thousand feet and he was going to jump out and be the hero and land in front of the the, the commander of the, of the thai military but we didn't get that far so i i made this command decision i thought right i've got to just um i've just got to gently i've just got to bring him to land you know just keep keep going straight ahead and um and land the aircraft and as I reduced the power, it kind of dropped, the nose dropped, and then the aircraft just twisted around and went right, right onto its back. And so, and this happened at about a thousand feet and it just dropped like a stone. And I, there was nothing I could do. I'm trying to, you know, I'd lost all control of the aircraft and we were just whistling towards the ground. And I thought, this is it, this is the end. And, um, but what was fortunate is we didn't hit the hard runway. It's a big, wide runway. But just the, 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 the sides of the runway was kind of like this, and it's kind of sand and stone pebbles. Um, and so the aircraft hit that, and that's what saved us, really. But I kind of, as, as we hit, it was a big flash, and I, I, I was unconscious for a few seconds. Um, and then as I wake up, and I'm in a lot of pain because I dislocated my hip. So I'm still upside down in my harness with a dislocated hip. My, my hip is now here and my leg is across. I mean, kind of it's a very painful thing, a dislocated hip. I'm sure you've seen them. And um, 
And so I released my harness and just kind of dropped onto the ground. And then Yod is run, he's laughing his head off and um, yeah, laughing his head off, kind of in shock really. And, and he's kind of broken his hand, still got his rig on. Well, well, I didn't actually see that. I, all I saw just that first second was there was all this red and yellow around me. And I thought the en engine had come through and taken his head off. And there was just blood and guts all around me. And I was kind of in an altered state. You know, I was just coming around from, from being unconscious. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I've killed Yod. I've killed Yod. And then I heard this laughing. And Yod's wandering around in shock as well and with a broken hand. And, uh, and so he was alive. So I was relieved. And then they, um, and then there's ambulance and there's everyone running. And it was, I mean, right in front of this massive parade, the chief, as I, it was quite, quite funny in a way. And, um, and that's peer pressure, but they had to get me in the ambulance and take me off to, um, the, um, the local hospital. And then they casi back me by military helicopter to Bangkok. And there was a, there was a war going on at the time, um, up in Laos, um, with the Thai military. So lots of guys were being flown in and getting limbs amputated and I, so I got treated really well in this hospital um but they couldn't get me in the, the door of the ambulance with this dislocated hip my legs sticking out and they, so they had to kind of twist me into the ambulance and which sort of added to the pain but um but yeah so peer pressure is a, a dangerous thing and you have to be aware when it's coming your way and and stand your ground I I, I would say and um and uh, obey that little voice inside you that's saying, don't do this. Yes. And, and I've ignored it before as well. So once, one other time. Let's come on then and talk about your war corresponding, because that, that all sounds fairly um, near the knuckle. And uh, I think exciting is probably an understatement. How did that come about? Yeah, well, the first war I did, I was 24, um, and it was just after the, the Eiffel Tower jump, um, because Sigma were you know, a news agency in Paris, and so I had some good connections in there. And it was, at the, it was at the time when I was studying, and I was trying to figure out, you know, why we have these wars. Um, and that was a continuation of a catalyst, actually, when I was nine years of age, I remember coming back to London to visit my grandmother who lived in this house. She'd left um, Ireland uh, the year the war broke out with my father, who was age four at the time. They'd moved to London into an area which was called Little Island at the time. It's not Little Island anymore. Um, Dagnum, it's where Ford Motor Company were, so that or are still, I think. And so lots of Irish people were getting jobs with Ford Motor Company. So that's why my family moved there or my, my, my grandparents with, with their children. And and so she, you know, raised these children because um, my 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 grandfather had died kind of a few years after the Second World War, and so she'd raised six children, very devout Catholic woman um, in this same house, and so we would visit them. We'd come back from Germany at Christmas time, and I remember at the age of nine stood opposite the the house, and it was the streets that had been bombed by the German air force, and. Um, I guess in response to the British Air Force bombing Germany first, um, but you know they they were focused on the industrial parts of of of, of London, and so Dagnum was was one of those, and and so you know she lived and so many of those houses have been destroyed, 
Um, and so I remember as a, as a nine-year-old thinking, and we were living in Germany, and I really loved Germany, and I loved the German people. Um, and you know, we traveled all over the country in Austria and Switzerland and Italy on our summer holidays. Um, and I remember thinking, well, why would the nice German people want to kind of bomb the nice British people? Like, why would they want to do that? And so as a nine-year-old, I was beginning to think there must be something terribly wrong. And so I continued my studies throughout my early adulthood. And then I thought I'd get into war photography after the Falklands War. Um, and so the first war I covered was, the, with, was with Eritrea and Ethiopia at the time. And, and so I went, I wanted to, I kind of wanted to find out what was really going on. And they had a big famine and I knew because I'm an Irishman. So I knew that, that, um, you know, crops do fail and they had a massive famine in Ireland, um, in the, in the mid 1800s, um, which, you know, millions died and, and millions were, you know, men, many were pushed out into, into elsewhere in the, the banker's empire known as the British empire into North America and elsewhere. But um, so I just felt that um, there was something going on about this famine and because the famine- One one second. So so yeah, regarding um, famines and um, you know, the famine that I was aware of was the, you know, the the Irish famine and back in the mid 1800s and crops do fail, but um, but famines are, 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 are rigged, I mean, you know, you know, famines are man-made, um, but crops do fail. And so I, I knew that, um, you know, and, and millions died in, in the Irish famine and were displaced into other parts of the of the banker's empire known as the British Empire. So it was a tragedy for for, for my nation, for, for, for the Irish. Um, and there's actually a great book by um, Chris Fogarty. It's called The, uh, the Perfect Holocaust, because at the time, in the 18, mid-1800s, it was called a holocaust. Um, and so this is a very good book, very well researched, no conspiracy theory, just um, studying the data and, and, you know, the official record of, 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 of the empire. You know, half the British Empire was in, uh, in Ireland at the time, or sorry, half the, the British Army was in, um, in, um, in Ireland at the time. You know, the biggest empire the world's ever known, half its military forces were stationed in Ireland and they were called food removal regiments. But that's that's kind of what led me, I guess, to, to study the, the famine in Ethiopia. So I went there over the winter of 84 and 85 and to to try and figure out what was really going on with Western aid food. So I went behind enemy lines. I was with the Eritrean People's Liberation Front and documenting their side of the story. Um, and they took me behind enemy lines to document the misuse of the Western aid food. So a lot of Western aid was flooding into to um, to Ethiopia, um, and it was primarily feeding the Ethiopian army um, because the Ethiopian army was getting um, weapons from the Soviet Union at the time, but they weren't getting any food. So they rigged this famine um, because there there was definitely big problems with with food in 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 that part of Africa at the time. But it could have been dealt with a lot better, and if the food had been distributed correctly, it would have saved a lot of lives but they use that to get all this food and there's other mainstream media isn't putting it out this way. Um, but I went there and so I documented the misuse of Western aid food and Tigrayan traders would come into, um, uh, Ethiopian held territory. They would, the, the officers would sell surplus food to, um, 
which was meant to be given to starving people, that they would sell it to Tigrayan traders. And then these long camel trains with eight sacks of grain, each would, um, would move um, through Eritrean held land. And the Eritreans would take some of it because they were, they, you know, they were malnourished as well, but they were fighting a war. Um, and so they would take some of the food um, and then the rest of the food would then, the vast majority of it would be being sold by these Tigrayan traders um, into the markets of Sudan. So I came, I came back from that with this story of the misuse of Western aid food that I documented. Um, and I, I'd done lots of interviews um, with these Tigrayan traders and, and Ethiopian prisoners of war. And, you know, it was my, it was my first war as a, as a photojournalist. Um, you know, and filmed, you know, people dying, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, in what? Yeah, you know, and I wrote how, a song how, about it. How how were they dying? I mean, it of starvation, of of starvation. I mean, there was soldiers getting killed as well. But the, what was the the, the saddest was um, the you know people dying of starvation. Um, but yeah, I saw very interesting things. Film, yeah, just a whole bunch of stuff about the, 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 that war. But the big, the, the, the story that I sold was um, to the Sunday Times of London was uh, the misuse of Western aid food. So I, I went in there and, you know, they debriefed me. I spoke to them for a few hours, told them everything about what I'd experienced and I had photographs to prove it. And um, they bought the photographs. And they put they just put one photograph in there, a photograph of camels with um with sacks of grain. And uh, and they told a different story. They told a different story to the one that I told them. And then Live Aid came on, the big concert with um Bob Geldof and all of that. Um you know, it's just it's um without telling what was really going on, you know, the misuse of Western aid food. Um, and so the crime continued and Live Aid, you know, a lot of good people around Live Aid, but they, they weren't telling the whole story. Um, and so, yeah, that was, you know, and um, so that's when I began to realize that the media's rigged. Yeah. Sorry, Michael. I've just got to, my, my, my mail arrived this morning, and there's a, obviously the, the Perfect Holocaust by Chris Fogarty is a, an excellent read if you want to understand famine and how they're rigged. But I just got this other wonderful book just Great. arrived in the mail. So, yeah, very, very much looking forward to, to getting that. And I'm, now, I'm speaking to the man who wrote it. So look at that. <laughs> it just arrived. My son just handed me the envelope. And um, so that, that, that'll be my next read. I speak to the man who wrote it every yeah. day. That's because I'm losing, I'm losing the plot. <laughs> so just to finish off before we go to, to the other platform, you've seen an awful lot in your life, Mike, and I don't want to talk about your learning here because that's why we're going to go to the other platform, but how's it affected you on a mental health level? I think I'm perfectly normal, but uh, yeah, I mean, all these things affect you and, you know, your day is a constant stream of your, of, of your memories. Um, but I try not to be, you know, I do reflect on things and, and, and to in many ways honor the people that are no longer with us. It's good to, 
to think of our friends um, that have uh, been lost along the way, but I'm not consumed by it. And I'm more in, um, you know, I don't drink alcohol. I'm not against it. Um, I do, you know, on special occasions, maybe meeting up with um, old friends and, and family or, and certainly on Christmas day and Easter Sunday, I'll have a, a bit of wine. Um, but for, as a, as a, a daily weekly drinker, I, I, I keep that out of my life. I, I think that, in many ways alcohol takes away the part of you that protects you so um you know i think it's a, a good medicine at certain times but i think as a, if it's a habit it's um i think it lessens you um and so i, I i'd recommend you know keeping physically fit and, and eating good food and lots of water and lots of you know the right amount of sleep and lots of fresh air um and so i i think rather than me consumed by my past I'm more inspired by my vision of the future and, and, and the work that I need to do along with many, many people and that number's rising around the world that um, do have more love, they have more truth and they and do have better ideas. And so it's about bringing those people together um, and to, be, to become a formidable force. And, and that's it because it's, it's happening on our watch and we're we have a formidable enemy and they're obsessed with hate and with deception and bad ideas so we really have to be about love truth and better ideas for the sake of all peoples of the world and that's that's the movement we're caught up in and right. and i love it and um we must carry on and do our best right well and rise and shine very well said. Um, thank you for everything you've you've enlightened us with so far. Amazing life, um, hence the name of the podcast. So massive love to you. Um, please like and subscribe. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris Doctoral. Thank you.